So we, we sort of have that cognitive bias that everyone else is different, they're alien, they're weird, and that's multiplied or, or shaped by the desire to feel that we are lucky. We live in the best time and place, you know, and that feeds into the this myth of perpetual progress that if things are always getting better, then, you know, we're the luckiest ones. Thanks for joining me on the Lifestylist Podcast. I'm Luke Story, and this is episode 394. And this one was a long time coming with someone I've wanted to interview for many years, and we finally got it done. It's Dr. Chris Ryan, the author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, as we explore human domestication amongst a vast swath of other interesting topics. Now, oftentimes when somebody sends me a a lengthy bio, uh, I tend to just sort of truncate it and give the bullet points, but his bio was so interesting, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. Even before co-authoring the best-selling book, Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships in 2010, Chris was on a wild ride. After receiving a BA in English and American Literature in 1984, I think I was 14 in 1984, he's been at this for a while, He spent the next two decades traveling around the world, pausing in unexpected places to work very odd jobs like cutting salmon in Alaska, teaching English to prostitutes in Bangkok, and self-defense to land reform activists in Mexico, managing commercial real estate in New York's Diamond District, helping Spanish physicians translate and publish their research amongst other wild adventures, some of which we cover in this conversation. Then in his mid-30s, Chris decided to get serious and pursue doctoral studies in psychology using his dissertation to examine Darwin's rather naive understanding of human sexual evolution, which provided the core arguments later advanced in Sex at Dawn. Chris's latest book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress, asks whether civilization has been a net benefit to our species. He also hosts a weekly podcast, tangentially speaking, often recorded from the road while traveling in his van, Scarlett Johansson. The podcast features conversations with comics, bank robbers, drug smugglers, porn stars, authors, and an occasional rattlesnake expert. Chris also likes orange pants, and no one knows why. And here's a very brief breakdown of this spontaneous and multifaceted conversation. We, of course, explore his new book, Civilized to Death, of which I am a huge fan, his experience living as a nomad during a global pandemic, how to stretch time by following your wanderlust, the inherent numbing of sensation that comes with an overly comfortable lifestyle, the true agenda of machine learning, recognizing institutions as a life form as they are considered by law, my experience using his book Sex at Dawn as a cop-out of doing the work to allow true intimacy into my life, minimalism, and the unexpected burden of caring for physical belongings, the results of evading natural selection as we do in the Western world, the important realization that one can love chocolate without hating vanilla, a great lesson in these strange times, and finally the ironic and hilarious history of treadmills as a torture device. You can and will find the show notes for this very episode at lukestory.com slash Ryan, And there you'll find links to all of Chris's books and writings, as well as anything of interest we discussed in this conversation. And with that, I'm thrilled to present this long-awaited conversation, and I'm certain that you will too. Chris and I would both love it if you feel called to share this episode with a couple friends and perhaps even post it on social media. And here we go, my beloved listeners, with Dr. Chris Ryan. 
It's great to be finally sitting with you, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I've made a list well, six and a half, almost seven years ago of all the people I wanted to interview. And you were on that list. It's a long list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I know, right. It took me a while. Yeah. Well, you know, you have degrees of separation from people. I, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a bit vulnerable to just cold call someone on their website. And I know, you know, Neil Strauss, who's a good friend of mine. He's mm-hmm. been on the show a couple of times. So Neil was, uh, I think my first guest on my oh, podcast, really? 500 episodes ago. I probably heard that one. Yeah. Uh, tangen- tangentially speaking. Tangentially speaking. Tangentially speaking. A lot yeah. of people say tangentially speaking, which <laughs> it's all right with me as long as they can find it on Google. Yeah. yeah. So I, I and, thought, oh, one of these days I'll text Neil and, and do an intro or something. But then, you know, life happens and there's other people but you were yeah. on that freaking list i probably have it in my evernote so <laughs> super stoked to Thanks. sit down and chat with you um huge fan of both your books thank you uh, i mean i've been talking about this concept of domestication for a long time mm. and i think your book civilized to death just like sums up the whole thing so beautifully so i definitely want to touch sir. on that but uh before we do what's the most exciting thing going on in your life right now i understand you're kind of oh, nomadic what what, dude. what are you up to just cruising around the world uh trying to decide what to do with uh the rest of my life you know what, what am i going to do when i grow up uh yeah I, I think i mentioned before we went on here that uh from this weekend we're heading off i've got a van i don't know if you know i've got a big yeah. sprinter van yeah i like on your site how you have all all your favorite things from road tripping mm. that, that was pretty cool yeah Very handy for people oh for the the what makes this thing great yeah yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. that's a takeoff of uh rick uh beato has a a series on youtube called what makes this song great i love that guy do you know him oh yeah i i binge his videos oh, like dude, a maniac so it's just you never listen to a song the same way again yeah and anyway he's been on the podcast he's he's oh, cool. sort of a, a buddy uh although we've never met in person but he's been on twice and uh yeah so i asked him if it was cool if we did a thing because people are always writing saying so what do you use you know what's in your van what do you use for camping what's your favorite tent what's your favorite thing? so we just put up a thing uh on the website but anyway, yeah, we're cruising around. Scarlett Johansson is parked <laughs> outside a hotel. Oh, you have it here? Yeah, we have her here. We oh, picked, cool. picked her up in LA and uh, drove her out. And uh, so after this is over, we're heading into the desert in Utah. We're going to be out there for, I don't know, a few weeks, you know, just sort of see how it goes. And then the plan is go to Thailand. Uh, we were in Thailand a couple of years ago when COVID hit and sort of got interrupted. Um and so we're going to go back to Thailand. I've got uh, a buddy, an old friend of mine who lives on an island down there. So we're going to go chill with him for a while. And then maybe Nepal. I've been wanting to go back to Nepal since uh, I was a youngster. I, I went there, uh, God, 87, maybe something like that. And uh, I cut my foot. It was a weird thing. I was in Kathmandu one of the first nights I went up on the roof of this guest house. To watch the sunset and I stepped on some something sharp and really cut deep into my foot so deep that uh, I was told to go trekking would be really stupid because you get you know a week back into the mountains and your foot's right. infected because you're walking all day and and there's nothing no medical care so I didn't go trekking uh, I just hung out in Pokhara and mostly Pokhara for six weeks or so and so at the time, the way I dealt with the tragedy, tragedy was, uh, 
this means I have to come back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right? and now here it is, whatever, 30 years wow. later. And so maybe we'll go do some trekking in Nepal. And then we're thinking maybe Turkey and Spain. I lived in Spain for 20 years. It's time to get back there. Wow. So we're sort of doing around the world thing. So cool. With the caveat that shit happens and all, you know, yeah. everything could fall through. Who the, knows? I mean, traveling in the way that you describe, you know, has its spontaneity. But especially now in the world, I mean, yeah, I, I'm like, so hard to I'm reticent to travel anywhere. It's I, I feel like I might leave the United States and not be able to get back in, or you know, who knows what could happen. My my little yeah. brother's uh, he likes to go live in Colombia six months at a time, and you know, he's like, he'll text me, "What's in the news? Can I get back?" <laughs> I'm like, I think you're still American. You should be good. But yeah, uh, what do you think it is within you that um, gives you this wanderlust? You know, there are many people, as I'm sure you've discovered mm. as you travel, that are born in a town. And they live there their whole life and rarely leave. And then there are yeah. people like you that just have this need or desire to go experience different cultures and different ways of life. What, what do you think is at the core of that curiosity? Well, I think it's two things. I think there's, there's an attraction uh, that I'm moving toward, which is the change of perspective that gives you new insights into things, even familiar things like oneself, right? And one's culture. Um, Joseph Campbell wrote about detribalization, the realization that you're part of a tribe and that tribe has certain almost arbitrary belief systems and you detribalize by recognizing that there are other tribes with other belief systems and you go out and experience some of them and then you become separate from all tribal belief systems, right? Um, to bring it to bring it on home to where we are right now at Meet Delic, I think there's a reason we call this tripping, right? People using psychedelics yeah, yeah. because it does yeah. take you out of your familiar way of thinking and viewing things and, and makes things new again. Um, so my my whole life, I've been really invigorated by newness and and surprise, and you know, you mentioned spontaneity and and the feeling of not just the feeling, the realization that when my life was open, all sorts of interesting things came into it. But when I was back in the U.S. doing a nine to five, working, trying to save money to go on the next trip, not that much happened. I remember when I was in India the first time, I would sort of plan out my trip by the full moon. So I was like, okay, I'm in Srinagar now on this houseboat and it's really awesome. And, and the full, the moon is full and Next full moon, I want to be at the Taj Mahal, right? And then the full moon after that, Varanasi. And then the full moon after that, I want to get up, you know, into Kathmandu. And then it was a calendar month. But by the time I got to the Taj Mahal from Kashmir, it was like a lifetime ago. It, so much had happened. So many people had come in and out of my life. So I'd seen so many things. So much, you know, new content had, had gone into my brain that it felt like time stretches out and life becomes longer and more interesting and fuller, at least for me, my yeah. way of, of yeah. thinking. Um, so that's the attraction, the, the, the push, or that's the pull, right? The push is that I've never felt um, comfortable in the United States. Uh, I feel comfortable <laughs> in nature, yeah, you know, yeah. in the desert, in the mountains, whatever. Yeah. Um, but American culture has never made sense to me. Even when I was like a five-year-old kid, I was looking around saying, why are they doing this? 
This makes no sense. Yeah, I relate to that. You people are crazy. Yeah. So I've just always felt like an outsider here. Yeah. I, I feel <clears throat> much more at home in Spain than I do here, despite the fact that, you know, my Spanish is far from perfect. I don't look Spanish. No one ever thinks I'm from there, you know? Yeah. Um, but at this point in my life, I, I'm more comfortable as an outsider, honestly. Yeah. I think I've felt like an outsider just about everywhere I've ever been. <laughs> you yeah. Know? But like, as you wrote in uh, your amazing dude, by the way, I just want to tell you, I'm in the process of writing a book. I've been working on it forever. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that many people don't understand how hard it is to write a great book and to be a great writer. It, re it really is a, a rare skill. And when you sit down to do it, it's difficult. And I just yeah. want to tell you, like Thank from you. aspiring writer to writer, your writing is just pristine. It's epic. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. Man. Uh, but you know, kind. yeah, I mean, it's true, but you know, in your book, you're, you're going back into, you know, ancient civilizations, hunter gatherer people, and you're kind of tracing the steps along the map of time and where we've kind of gone awry. And it does seem that in certain places on earth, we've gone further awry, right? This being one of them. And it's interesting that from one perspective in Western culture, in the United States specifically, we've made so much progress, mm. air quotes, right? Yet we're in some ways, one of the most devolved cultures on earth. When you begin to travel and you, you go to South America and, and places like India, I remember um, when you mentioned India, it, it sparked a huge kind of punctuation point in, um, in my own growth when I went to India for about five weeks, um, maybe 2004. And I'm in these, remote villages just in the middle of nowhere in southern india where it's, mm. it's generally much more remote anyway and we would uh we'd get a tuk-tuk ride out into some village to go look at you know a temple or something or ashram and uh i remember being out there and what really struck me was the children and how ecstatic these kids were living in what we would as westerners determine to be squalor and suffering and mm. they're they're just stoked. I've never seen, and not just the kids, but I mean, the kids are just so much more alive and exuberant than, than older people, generally speaking. And we'd get off the tuk-tuk and be taking pictures. And these kids had, I mean, I think never even seen a camera in person before, yeah. you know? And I'm looking at this, no indoor plumbing. And I go, God, when I was eight, I was like suicidal already. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, I was having those kind of thoughts. And I'm going... I'm sure there are sad Indian kids, but it was just such a big awakening for me to see that it, it really is about the inner experience more so than it is a, about your level of comfort. It just yeah. had, a, had a huge impact on me. Yeah. Yeah. Comfort is another word for numbness, right? Comfort is the absence of discomfort, which is sensation. Uh, I remember I was staying with some friends in Topanga uh, and they're, they're really nice people. I love these people. Um, and I was staying in their guest house and they're wealthy. And so they had this new mattress and, and the woman said to me, Hey, I'm interested. Let me know tomorrow what you think of this mattress. It was $8,000. It's some special natural latex, you know, <laughs> sustainably harvested, you know, yeah. the whole thing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Egyptian cotton sheets and the uh, everything. And uh, so I was up there working and I went to bed. And I woke up the next day and went down and we were having breakfast. And she says, what did you think of that, that mattress and the whole setup? And I said, 
uh, I guess it's great because I didn't notice anything, you know, <laughs> and it occurred to me like that's the whole point that you don't notice right. anything. Right. And people get more money. I wrote about this in Civilized to Death. As people get more money, what do they do with it? They start cutting themselves off from other people because they're afraid they're going to get scammed. Everyone's got an angle. You got to have security. You got to you buy a bigger house. You put a wall around it or you stay at the expensive hotel you know, where the windows don't open rather than the guest house where the dogs are barking outside and, you know, the call to prayer is going off at dawn or whatever. It's a weird concept of progress that it separates us from life and from each other, which are the things that make life enjoyable and meaningful. And so that's what you saw with those kids. And I saw with, you know, kids in, in India and elsewhere is like, yeah, they don't have a lot of the stuff we have, but the stuff we have is really heavy. Yeah, totally. You know? And now with yeah. the fucking phones. Yeah. Right? And we see kids are separated from each other by these screens. And then they're all, you know, the suicide rates are up. Depression is up. The self-harm is up. Addiction is up. Like, obviously, you know, and now we've been with them long enough to, to really have some data uh, I'm sure you know about Tristan Harris's work and other people. No, I don't. He was an, an ethicist at Google. He's, uh, I think he's got a double PhD from Stanford in computer science and philosophy. And so he was the in-house ethicist at, at Google, which is a funny, <laughs> funny thing. But anyway, he quit because he realized like the, you know, the technology, these apps they're not neutral. Oh, yes. I know the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's done yeah. a few. Doc- yeah. I think he has a Netflix documentary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the whole point is, you know, you've got a kid looking at the phone, and on the other side of that phone are 100 engineers and psychologists working to drain the life out of that kid, to drain the attention, to drain the time. That's, yeah. that's the world we live in. So those kids in India, they're not dealing with that shit. At least they weren't when I first went there. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. It's that thing where with technology, where you think you're buying into a product unbeknownst to you, you are the product, yeah, right? Exactly. You know, your mind and it's stickiness and attachments for, yeah. you know, excitement, comfort, dopamine connection, whatever it is, is actually creating a product out of you. It's so bizarre now, right? You're sitting in a room, you talk about I really, you know, in your case, maybe I want to get, th- get this new sleeping bag, the ABC sleeping bag. It looks really cool for my road trips. And the next day you start being fed those ads, right? Yeah. I mean, it's spooky. Yeah. They're getting in your head. I, I mean, I think that we're in this bizarre moment where, I mean, I don't know, this might sound a little conspiracy theorist, but uh, I think that machines are learning to be human. I think that's what's going on. That's with all this da- what all this data mining is about. It's not just to sell us shit. It's to become us. The transhumanism agenda. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, weakening us in the process, right? Yeah. They're getting stronger. We're getting weaker. Obviously, that's where we're going. I like to use the, the term conspiracy analysis, analysis right? right? Analyst yeah. versus theorist, right? Because you can have a theory or something, but they're, that means that you're saying there might be a conspiracy here. An analyst is someone who says, "It's already we've already seen there is a conspiracy, yeah. right? right? And I'm Let's just analyzing. It. I'm just analyzing it and exploring it and, yeah. and looking into it. You know, but the weird that, thing is, I don't think. I mean, strictly speaking, I don't really think it's a conspiracy because a conspiracy is a group of people get together and decide they're going to do something, right? Right. I don't think anyone's decided to do this. 
I think that that institutions are a life form and we just haven't recognized it yet because we're embedded within them. I think corporations are living things. They're very alien to us and hard to recognize, but they've convinced us to even give them religious rights, give them political power, give them movement and, and they can disappear and reappear elsewhere. They're psychopaths, but we've like invented them somehow, but in a way that, you know, bees invented a hive, but nobody was like, there was no Albert Einstein bee that was like, what we need to do is create a hive. That's a I got point. an idea. That's a good point. Uh, there's no, you know, termite architect. The, the mound just happens somehow. Yeah. There's an emergent intelligence. We call it emergent intelligence. It could also be emergent ignorance. And I think we're in this point now where some people are starting to look around and say, like, we're working against our own interests. This makes no sense. It makes no sense for a biological entity on planet Earth to be shitting all over it, destroying the, the systems that support human life and all other life. And yet we're doing it. We're doing it at, at an increasing pace, even though we see the destruction in our face. We're still doing it. And to me, that's like a school of salmon swimming right into the net. Like you see the net, but the school's going that way. So here we go. Well, this idea of uh, a corporation being a living thing, I mean, it's right in the word, right? The, the, to the corpse, incorporate, yeah, yeah, incorporate yeah. To, to be alive, to have a body, yeah. right? So there's kind of a hive mind yeah. body of corporations. And I think, I think that's where it gets interesting with this idea of, you know, a conspiracy theorist thinking that evil Google is out to get us, right? And then you think, well, surely not everyone in the corporation has nefarious intentions. You know, right. I, my uncle works in the CIA. He's a great guy, right? right? But due to this kind of pyramidal structure of these entities, these organizations, it's just inherent that not everyone within it is going to know what's going on from the directive. And as you indicate, sometimes the directive isn't even known. You're just kind of like hurling right. forward and the hive is built and everyone's going, how did we get here? Like the guy that defected from Google, I'm sure when he went in there, yeah. he, he wasn't one of the baddies, you know, one of the reptilians or whatever. Right. He just, you know, he's good at what he does. He gets a good gig and then later on realizes, oh, look what we're building. I'm yeah. out. Yeah. And he's one of the few who was able to get out. He doesn't have kids, a mortgage and, you know, right. the whole thing. I mean, I thought it was an interesting moment. I don't know if you remember, but in the early days of Google, their logo said, don't be evil. And at some point they had a meeting of the board of directors <laughs> and they said, we got to take that down. Right. Don't be evil. Can't be our, our slogan anymore. Why? Wow. <laughs> I mean, what a weird, I would have loved to have been there for that meeting, yeah. you know, like, or at least not to, we kind of <laughs> need to be a little evil guys. Or at least re <laughs> replace it with the inverse reality of, you know, be altruistic. No, we're just going to take the whole thing away and just pretend it see ever what happens. happens. Yeah. As someone who spends so much time, energy, and money to be healthy, I want to keep track of what's working and what's not. That's why I'm really into this company I found called Inside Tracker. They are an ultra personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness tracker to help you optimize your body and reach your health and wellness goals. Through their app and testing protocol, I'm able to get a clear picture of what my body looks like on the inside. 
And I also get a clear measure of whether my diet, supplement, and exercise choices are helping or even hurting. I did the whole inside tracker deal recently and was actually shocked to find that I was less than perfect in some areas. My cholesterol and B vitamins were high, for example, and a few other things that need a little tweaking. There was, of course, also some good news, as my overall health score was that of a much younger person and certainly more optimized than your average American. And that's the point. The whole goal with Inside Tracker is to be optimized, not normal. So they don't merely show you the normal biomarker zones. They show you the optimal biomarker zones and numbers that are best for your individual body. So if you want to check this out, I highly recommend you sign up for Inside Tracker now. You're going to get your testing done, the results of your biomarkers, and then some incredible lifestyle and diet recommendations from their brainiac scientists to help you improve everything you find. Just go to insidetracker.com Luke, where you will save 25% off your entire order. That's insidetracker.com Luke. I, I would be remiss, Chris, if I didn't, you know, I'm sure you're to some degree tired of talking about it, but I want to talk a bit about your Sex at Dawn book. Oh, God, I thought you were going to say my sex life. No, we don't have to talk about that unless you so choose. <laughs> if it weaves into the conversation, I'm open to it. But, you know, I, I think I probably got this sometime after it came out. And there were, there were two books, yours and uh, The Ethical Slut. And I was someone who was just terrified of true, authentic intimacy mm. and the idea of uh, being monogamous and committing my life to a partner. And, you know, through a lot of work and specifically in, in medicine and psychedelics, which hopefully we'll get to. Uh, found that it was childhood experiences for me that really prevented me from the um, the capacity for vulnerability, right? So there was always kind of this wall and barrier. And when I found those two books, I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, now I have a good excuse to never really be all in. Mm. You know, it's because, hey, we, we're not designed this way, da, da, da. Mm. like all the historical sort of rhetoric and, and maybe facts around uh, that humans aren't innately this way. That led me, and I'm assuming probably tens of thousands of other people to explore different um, configurations of relationship. And I know for me, uh, for the most part, those explorations ended up in pain for me and the other party. Uh, and through my own, this kind of maturity and growth, I'm very happily uh, in a committed relationship. Couldn't imagine it being any other way. I have zero desire to try anything out because I kind of tried everything and none of it worked. So I'm wondering what the impact that book had from from your perspective it's one subjective not like i blame you and your book for my, my meanderings but it was kind of the it was the key that fit the lock that i was looking for to go mm. look look it says it right there and i think a, a lot of people share that experience so since you wrote the book and put it out what has been the kind of aftermath or effect of that in terms of what you see in people's relationships and how they choose to be in them yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and of course, there's a lot of uh, sort of filtration that happens before I see anything, right? So I either hear from people who uh, reach out to me because they're grateful, because the book helped them move to a better place, um, or I hear from people who are angry because the book gave their partner an apparent excuse to act irresponsibly, you know? <laughs> right, right. So, right. Uh, I, and then, you know, those are just the people who take the time to write to me and, and, you know, tell me their story. Um, so I don't know how representative any of that is, but 
I've been very, I would say, you know, 90% of the feedback I've received has been really positive. It's been people saying that the book helped them have a conversation that they needed to have. Right. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the most comprehensive answer to your question is that as far as what I've learned from having written that book is that people have their own re reaction and relationship to a book that doesn't really involve me. It's, it's like, I sometimes think about Michael Jordan's father and people would come up to Michael Jordan and say, man, you must be so proud of my son and he, you know, or your son. And, and he's like, I don't know. I gave birth to the kid and then he did this thing. And now you have a relationship with him. It kind of has nothing to do with me. Right. That's how I feel about sex at dawn in some ways. Like I wrote the book with Casilda and we put it out there, but it was like 12 years ago. So I hardly remember the experience of writing it. And, um, and people have their very personal responses to it because people read in it what they want to read in it. Exactly. There's no, there's <laughs> I think no that place. Was, that was my experience. Right. And there's no place in the book that says, you know, it's human nature to be shallow and disrespectful and just run around fucking lots of people without giving a shit about anyone. Like th that line is not in the book. I'm sure of it. Uh, but people, some people read that. Other people read, um, you know, it's natural to have desire for someone other than your partner. Uh, but that doesn't mean there's any reason to act on it necessarily. Uh, and that's more, that's closer to, I think, what we meant to say. The thing about prehistory is it's very hard for people to make the imaginative leap to really get a sense of what life was like there because it's so diametrically opposed to what we know in the modern world. So I, I remember we made a point of the word promiscuous. Like we're saying, yes, the, the data as we read it is quite overwhelming that our ancestors were sexually promiscuous, but that doesn't mean to them what it means to us. To us, promiscuous means you have sex with strangers. You have sex with people you'll never see again. Well, those people didn't exist in prehistory, right? In a prehistoric band of, of up to 100 people, those are people you grew up with. Those are people you're going to grow old and die with. Those are people you go hunting with or gathering or, or you, you breastfeed each other's children. There's anything but, uh, you know, anonymity in a hunter-gatherer society. There's deep intimacy, whether it's sexual or not, there's deep intimacy among that group. And what we were proposing in the book is that sexuality was a way of establishing and maintaining these networks of intimacy um, in addition to sharing food and taking care of each other's children and living together in one structure and traveling together and you know, watching each other grow up and die. So, so sexuality was embedded in all in this, in this complex nuanced system of intimacy, not anonymous you know, meet someone in a bar, have sex and, and call them an Uber, right? So I, I think that's one of the problems with the book is that people look at it and say, oh, if I apply this to my life, it looks like this. And <laughs> right. it's like, yeah, but that's a whole different world. Different context, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I often find myself, you know, saying, no, this doesn't give you an excuse to cheat. 
no, this doesn't mean, you know, everyone's a slut and should run around and fuck everybody and not worry about it. No, this is not an argument that everyone should be a swinger. That's all modern interpretations of this. All we're saying in the book is this is clearly the type of primate we are. Here's the evidence. And as far as what we want people to conclude from it, Really, the only lesson we we were trying to impart in the book was to be more compassionate to yourself and to your the people you love. Be compassionate and understand that your desire to have sex with someone else doesn't mean your relationship is bad. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or your partner. It just means you're a homo sapien. That's normal. What you do with it, whole different question. That's a that's a really key distinction. I mean, I uh, grew up with predominantly a very liberal parent, and sex, you know, I wasn't Christian or any kind of fundamental religious influence. It was just, I think, kind of do what you want and don't hurt people. And I think I probably failed yeah. at the latter um, in many cases. But I can imagine for someone who has this sense of shame and guilt and sin around their sexuality right. that you're having these impulses in your inner marriage and you think, Oh my God, I'm a rotten person. It's I'm sure quite often that the repression of that and the misunderstanding of that would lead someone to go out and actually do something harmful to themselves or another person. Right. Yeah. It's like the molesting priest kind of sure. uh, dichotomy. Right. And you go, God, how could that happen? When you, when you repress and have a lack of awareness with who you are and what makes you tick pathology kind of squishes out the edges, you know, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that that perspective. It makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's also um, in my experience, I did kind of use it as a green light to try and explore different types of relationships and level of monogamy or not, and um, ultimately accepting that it is normal and natural to have these drives. But we have a lot of drives that we don't necessarily act on. Right? We have the capacity for higher states of consciousness. This isn't to say that people who are, are not monogamous don't have high consciousness, but I drive around sometimes and have the thought, God, I want to fucking kill that guy. You know, I don't do it. It's a thought and I go, okay, calm down, ego, slow down, you know, and then everything's fine. And it might be the same way um, for someone who's attracted to someone and they have that impulse and they go, yeah, but let's play it through. Like, right. what does this look like on the other side? Are people going to get hurt? Am I going to undermine relationships in my work or my family? And okay, cool. I absolve myself of being a homo sapien and having those drives, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm just beholden to act on them indiscriminately. And it's, I think it's easier to control drives when you understand their origin and when you cleanse them of all that shame and guilt that you were talking about, because I think that tends to turbocharge them in a way, right? It, it, it pushes them into a dark space where they grow and, and get energized. Um, and when you understand the evolutionary and biological reality of your own body and, and whatever evolutionary trajectory is embedded in our minds, then you can control things better. It, you know, I often say it's like, you know, if your dog is, is, you know, tearing up your sofa or something and you want to understand dog behavior and how can I deal with this dog, you study wolves, right? Because your dog is more or less a wolf, a uh, modified wolf. We are modified hunter-gatherers. So if you want to understand the human 
impulses and, and nature and how we interact and why and what the motivations are and all that. Study hunter-gatherers. That's where we came from. Uh, and, and a lot of people still are. Well, not a lot, but some people still are hunter-gatherers. Um, so I think that there's a lot of... Um, a lot of good reason to look at hunter-gatherers to understand ourselves. And as you say, that doesn't mean we should be hunter-gatherers. It just means that's where we came from. That's what we are. And uh, that's how we're going to be able to, to control ourselves and, and live together more harmoniously and find the things that make us happy. Because we're, you know, getting back to the earlier bit of the conversation these corporations are trying to convince us that this stuff will make us happy, but it doesn't work, right? <laughs> what is it? What makes a dog happy? Running outside, smelling things, returning to where it came from, right? Playing with other dogs, pack, right? Pack psychology. That's what makes a dog happy. That's what makes us happy. The things that have always made us happy, nature, clean air, intimacy, friendships, community, Music, sleep, being with children. These are the things that make us happy. Not screens and, you know, money we'll never spend. I've been pretty damn obsessed with mitochondria for the past couple years. From blue light hacks to saunas and cold plunges, I'm always after more ATP, our body's main fuel source. And up until now, there haven't been very many supplements on the market to support mitophagy or the flushing out of old, damaged mitochondria. So when I discovered this unique compound called urolithin A, I was super intrigued. It's found in pomegranate, but it's very hard, well, impossible really, to eat or drink enough of it to get the scientifically proven clinical dose. This is where a product called MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition comes in. They've created three ways to get your daily dose of 500 milligrams of urolithin A in their product MitoPure. They've got a delicious vanilla protein powder that combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure and a berry powder that easily mixes into smoothies or just about any drink and finally soft gels for travel. Personally, I love the new starter pack, which lets you try all three forms of MitoPure. This is the first product to offer a precise dose of this compound to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength. It actually took 10 years of research to bring this potent product to market, and I'm personally glad it did because it works. Right now is a special offer for my audience. That means you. Use the promo code LUKE10 to get 10% off any 2, 4, or 12-month MitoPure plan at TimelineNutrition.com. That's TimelineNutrition.com. And to learn more about this fascinating discovery, go back and check out episode 389 with Dr. Chris Rinch. It's incredible stuff. That's what I'm fascinated by this idea of domestication and how we can sort of win back some of our natural life practices, even though we're, <laughs> we find ourselves in this industrialized world. But um, I wanted to touch on something in terms of stuff. You know, there was another, in addition to that one thing that happened in India where I saw these happy kids with nothing. I remember years ago, my dad, who uh, wasn't as financially successful by, by most metrics, um, he started selling off all his four-wheelers and horses and all his toys that he'd acquired. And when he was doing that, I was like, dad, this stuff's awesome. He goes, Luke, when you make money, don't ever buy stuff. It just becomes a burden. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, oh, but it's fun. 
Yeah, but he goes, then you got to take care of it, right? You (laughs) got the horse, now you need a horse trailer. Well, then you got to get shoes on the horse. Then you need the saddles. You know, it's just like anything that you kind of add. And I just bought my first home and I'm going, oh, I get it. Yeah. You know, we're remodeling the house. And I'm like, well, then I want to do the hot tub and the this and the that in the backyard. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I kind of miss just renting my place in Laurel Canyon. Not have to worry about any of this shit, you know? It, it really is interesting how I live in a van, dude. Yeah, just how things <laughs> just start to, to weigh on you. And it, yeah. you know, it's a quality problem, of course. Um, and I'm happy to be working my way through this. But it's interesting that so many of us are, are brainwashed into the possession of things being the key to fulfillment. You know, and then yeah. it, it's like we bury ourselves in stuff and then go, oh, how can I get out? Now I have to pay for it, take care of it, get yeah. rid of it the ex took it, et cetera. You know, it's just, it really can be a trap. It, again, we live in their world. It makes them happy that we buy all this stuff, whatever that life form is that we're dealing with here. Right. It doesn't make us happy, but they convince us it does. You know, it's like convincing a, a horse that it's happy pulling a wagon. I don't think so. I think that right. horse would be a lot happier running around free in a herd, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. As would we. All right. So there's yeah. a couple of things I want to touch on in uh, civilized death here. I have my, my official laptop because I didn't have a printer. Uh, there are just so many great points. And I, I like the way, the way you approach the book is like, you thought it was this way. You're wrong. Here's why. Here's the history to <laughs> prove it. it. I mean, not that it's antagonistic, but it's just, yeah. I like, I like the crumbling of ideas based on falsehood. And just yeah. and breaking assumptions, right? It's it it allows a guy like me to think, oh yeah, this makes sense. And you're talking about just fundamental truths. And so there, some of my favorites are actually in your cheat sheet, and um, we'll put that in the oh, notes. The cocktail party, cheat yeah, the sheet. cocktail yeah. party cheat sheet. We'll I put, think every author should do that. Totally, you know, totally. Just throw it up on the website. You don't have to read the book, folks. Just read the cocktail party cheat sheet. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of the main points are presented there and guys listening, we'll put it in the show notes at lukestory.com slash Chris Ryan. That's lukestory.com slash Chris Ryan. So the first one, and I think this is one of the most common misconceptions about ancient peoples and hunter gatherers is that prehistoric life was a constant struggle to survive. Yeah. You know, we think, oh man, you need to wake up every day and find water and food and you're freezing all the time. And, you know, that's how I picture it. And that we, you know, we do nothing but work. There's no leisurely time. So why is that uh, a false view? Well, uh, it's a false view. I mean, you know, the most basic answer is because it's simply inaccurate. Um, but the motivation for promoting that false view is interesting to me. Um, because, you know, we could say it started with Hobbes, right? Uh, before the advent of the state, Hobbes wrote in 1651 in Leviathan, uh, human life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Incredibly famous sentence, right? Like everyone who speaks English has heard that sentence. And uh, yet it's totally wrong on every count. Hunter-gatherer life was not solitary, much more intimacy than we have. Um, You know, as I explained earlier in the context of sexuality, far more interaction and and interdependence and cooperation um, in hunter-gatherer life than in the modern world. Uh, Poor, poor is a measure of having less than someone else. If everyone shares and has the same, then no one's poor. (laughs) 
No one's rich. No one's poor. We all just are surviving together, right? Um, so there's no poverty in hunter-gatherer groups. Um, in fact, Marshall Salins, uh, an anthropologist, wrote a very famous paper in the 70s that sort of started challenging this standard narrative of, of perpetual progress and, and the Hobbesian, the neo-Hobbesian view. It's called the, the First Affluent Society. And he made that point that affluence is when you have enough. And hunter-gatherers generally have enough. It's farmers who don't have enough. It's farmers who start to have poverty and inequality of resource uh, access to resources and hierarchical political structures and all that kind of stuff. So hunter-gatherers can be seen as affluent because not only do they have enough, but they see the world around them as being a place of great abundance, right? right? right. Because yeah. it's like, yeah. I mean, there was this, uh, I forget which book I quoted it in, but there is a case of uh, a Jesuit um, missionary in present-day Canada uh, in the 1600s, and he was reporting about uh, his time with uh, Indians there. And he talked about how they were, there was this feast going on. And there had been a feast the night before, too. And they invite the neighboring groups in because they've got all these beavers that they're roasting. And the missionary says to one of the, the men, like, why are you eating all the food, right? You could save some for tomorrow and you're sharing it with all these people. You hardly see them. And he's like, well, we have lots of food. Let's eat it. And he said, well, what are you going to do tomorrow? He said, we'll, we'll find more food. And he said, well, what if you don't find more food? He said, then we'll be hungry for a day or two. It's no big deal, man. <laughs> and at the same, the same party, the women are going off and having sex in the, in the shadows, right? With different men. And, and the Jesuit is obviously noticing this and he's all upset about it. And he says to the same guy, like, why do you let your women do this there? Like, I know that woman, you're with her, but he's, she's having sex with that guy from the other group who came in and he's like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. And he says, well, like, how are you going to know? Like, if she gets a, a child, how are you going to know whose child it is? And he, and, and the missionary wrote in his notes, the man looked at me with great sadness and compassion and he said, you French are very strange. You only love your own children? Wow. I mean, that just sums it up, right? It's like, yeah. what's wrong? What's wrong? And the, like, there's and the enough idea love with, to go around, you know? And the idea within that, that you possess, it's your child, your wife. And you would only food. care yeah. about your <laughs> yeah. child. These are people who share uh, their food, right? Yeah. These are people who don't have refrigeration. They don't have preservation they don't have accumulated resources if you shoot a moose what are you going to do like you know cut off a steak for you and your wife and tell everyone else to piss off that's not the way it works so anyway the the so it wasn't solitary it wasn't poor it wasn't nasty it wasn't brutish and it wasn't short the human lifespan has always been into the 70s and 80s the idea that everyone died when they were 30 or 35 is total nonsense. Where does that fallacy come from? Is that because of infant mortality yeah, and exactly. kind of skewing the numbers? Right. It's a mathematical thing. So if and and it's true that a lot of hunter-gatherer babies die uh in the first 10 years of life. Uh 15 to 25% in some cases. So if you 
if you have 25% of uh, kids die when they're five years old, let's say, and you mathematically average them in, then the average lifespan at birth drops a lot, right? right? But that's been misunderstood to mean that people were old when they were 30, 20,000 years ago. That's just not true. If you survive childhood, and you made it into your teens and 20s. You survived the communicable diseases. And, and uh, you know, some babies are born uh, not equipped, you know, to, to survive in that kind of environment. Uh, which, by the way, is another reason that the kids in India that you saw look so happy and energized. Because the kids who aren't energized and aren't really healthy died. That's what it's like in, in many places of the world still today. My ex-wife is from Mozambique, and she's a doctor. And she talked about this a lot when she was working in Europe. She said, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of people with chronic diseases that just don't make it past childhood in Africa. So in Africa, when an adult comes into your your office as a doctor, you're dealing with someone who's strong, who's got a strong immune system, who's got a strong body. They've they've been through the, the filters, you know, whereas in Europe and the United States, we're very good at keeping people alive who right. wouldn't be otherwise. We, we kind of evade natural selection. Exactly. That's so interesting. Exactly. And, you know, I'm not saying what's better or what's worse. I'm not yeah. making any ethical judgment. I'm just noting that it changes things. There's another yeah. piece to the, um, you know, the domestication and kind of how our society's formed that's really interesting with the advent of agriculture moving out of hunter-gatherers. Now you have surplus of food right and now you need property and there has to be property lines and someone that owns that property and then when you have these resources and you want to hoard them then you need armies and then you need systems of law and it it's just like when you when you zero in on what happened it seems like agriculture was possibly the worst thing that ever happened to the human race yeah there's you see it that way yeah, I, there's a famous essay by uh, Jared Diamond, who wrote uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, a huge book, uh, called The Worst Mistake in the History of the Human Race. And it's about the advent of agriculture. And, and that's the argument he makes and others have made. Yeah, I, I think it's it's nuanced because there is archaeological evidence of agricultural societies that lasted for some centuries without becoming warlike expansionist uh, groups, but eventually they all did. So it may be a little oversimplistic, and and I'm guilty of this, of saying agriculture causes this, right? Right. It's not like one step absolutely leads immediately to the next. But everywhere that agriculture has arisen, and it's arisen at least six times independently in different parts of the world— uh, within a thousand years, you have very hierarchical uh, military expansionist um, empires that that grow around that uh, agriculture. So it does eventually. There's a new book out, um, "The Dawn of Everything." I call. I think it's called. It just came out a week or two ago. That makes a big point. That okay, there there is evidence that there are these societies that that were around for a while. They seem to be growing things, but they weren't, you know, they didn't have slaves and they weren't attacking neighboring um, areas. But eventually they do because, the, you know, the, the inescapable logic of agriculture is 
you start to grow food, you end up with a surplus, as you said, birth rates go up because not only do you have that surplus, surplus of food, but now you also have domesticated animals, including cattle in most cases. And so babies can be weaned earlier because you've got cow milk rather than mother's milk, which makes the women fertile sooner because as they're breastfeeding, oh, interesting. while a woman's breastfeeding, she tends not to ovulate, especially if she has low body fat. So hunter-gatherers who breastfed for four years typically uh, were not fertile during those four years, plus the nine months that they were pregnant. So, so it kind of titrates the birth rate exactly, naturally. Right. So that's uh. why hunter-gatherer population levels remain static, uh, very steady, very, very minor growth uh, globally uh, for tens of thousands of years. And then the, as soon as agriculture appeared, you see it just rocket uh, wow. global population. By now, most of us are clued into the fact that gut health is fundamental to so many other aspects of our health. But did you know that your dog's gut is just as important to theirs? Any of the following could point to an issue with your dog's gut health. Surprisingly smelly gas or poop, diarrhea that's difficult to pick up, unusually bad breath, persistent tear strains, hair loss, or itchy skin, and behavior like separation anxiety, aggression, or hyperactivity. As the largest immune barrier in a dog's body, it doesn't take much to knock their gut microbiome out of whack. Habits like eating wheat, corn, and soy found in so many commercial dog foods, as well as eating poop, ew, gross, I know, but they do it, eating garbage or dead animals, emotional distress like thunderstorms, being boarded, separation anxiety, etc., sudden dietary changes, antibiotics, GI infections, and pesticides that linger in food, water, dirt, and the grass they play on. The best solution to this issue I've found is called Just Pets Probiotic from Just Thrive, which is what I feed our dog, Cookie. According to research, your dog's naturally harsh stomach acid, which is necessary for digesting all types of foods, kills off 99.99% of the probiotic strains available on the market. And womp womp, that means most doggy probiotic products die long before their active strains get to the intestines. But Just Thrive's unique spore-based probiotic strains are designed by nature to arrive 100% alive in the intestines where they can support digestive, behavioral, and immune system health in your pup. So to get your dog's gut sorted out, hop over to justthrivehealth.com and use the code LUKE15 at checkout. Again, that's justthrivehealth.com and use the code LUKE15 for 15% off their entire website. There was another myth that you explore in that um, hunter-gatherer people were constantly at war and right. you know, got deemed as savages by the, by the folks who came in on boats and whatnot. Yeah. Um, where is that um, story kind of... Yeah. Well, that gets back to the, the point I was making earlier. I think, you know, we're talking about Hobbes and the motivation for this, uh, this depiction of hunter-gatherers. Part of it is misunderstanding. Hobbes had never seen a hunter-gatherer, right? Rousseau never met a hunter-gatherer. Uh, the, these images that were developed by European philosophers were based upon accounts that were brought back from missionaries or travelers, traders. Um, so it's very uh, much not science, right? It's, it's fantasy. Um, 
In fact, there's a very interesting thing. I don't know if you remember in Civilized to Death, there's an aside where I talk about the origin of the term noble savage, Mm -hmm. which is most people think it comes from Rousseau. Rousseau never used the word. Uh, It seems to have come from uh, a French lawyer, I believe, who noted, he wrote an essay and he, he said that these accounts of the of the native people in the Americas that are coming back from the Jesuits primarily, they hunt wherever they want. They are not subjected to anyone's whim. They don't have Kings telling them what to do and where they can go and where they can't go. They act as if they're nobility, right? Cause in Europe, the only people who could go right. where they wanted to do what right. they wanted were nobility. Uh, so yeah. the noble, he meant they, these savages live like Kings. Right. Right. The noble savage. Um, anyway, the, but getting back to your, your, your earlier point, the, I think there's a great motivation to demonize hunter-gatherers because every society promotes itself. Every society advertises for the greatness of itself, right? That's one way to keep people obedient and, and, uh, you know, on the team is you tell them how fucking great they have it. And so if you're telling people that actually the hunter gatherers have it better than us, the whole thing's going to collapse. Right. (laughs) right. And in fact, there were laws in colonial America that you cannot go and live with the Indians because so many people, so many Europeans were saying, fuck this running into the woods, living with the Indians that they passed laws in the colonies and the 13 colonies saying it is illegal for you to leave, you know, this wonderful world that we're building to go live with the Indians. And there's many cases Benjamin Franklin wrote about, the hundreds of cases, even of people who were captured by the Indians, right? Their, their parents murdered or the husband murdered and the woman dragged into the woods. And, you know, two years later, she's recaptured by the whites, <laughs> rescued. And she's like, uh, thanks, but I'm going back. <laughs> oh man, so good. Yeah. So so I think there's a propaganda yeah. element to this that we need to be honest about. And you know, we do it with other societies, right? We the America, we're USA, we're number one. And France is like, no, actually, we we know how to live. And the Italians are like, no, no, we we've got we've got this figured out. You know, everybody thinks Navajo, Apache, Cheyenne, Lakota, all these words mean the people. Right. Everyone thinks we are the people. You, I don't know what the hell you are, but we're the people. It's a natural human impulse to sort of say, I don't have an accent. Everyone who talks different is has an accent, not me. So we, we sort of have that cognitive bias that everyone else is different. They're alien. They're weird. And that's multiplied or, or shaped by the desire to feel that we are lucky we live in the best time and place you know and that feeds into the this myth of perpetual progress that if things are always getting better then you know we're the luckiest ones right (laughs) we live at the pinnacle of the best possible time and so 20 years from now it's going to be even better jetpacks just imagine (laughs) how great it's going to be our phones will be embedded into our foreheads. We'll be so lucky. I mean, it's just nonsense when you think about it, but it's ubiquitous. It's interesting too with the uh, the tribalism. You know, humans' propensity 
for the um, self-identification, right? And, and micro-identification of, of our group. It's like we haven't yet, many of us at least, haven't evolved to be celebrating who and what we are as a culture without being against the other one, right? right? It's yeah. like David Hawkins, one of my favorite teachers, he said, you know, you can like chocolate without being against vanilla. <laughs> like, and I always talk about how I love America. I mean, I love America. I love this country. Uh, and I think when some people hear that, they think, oh, that USA number one, we're uh, better than, I'm like, no, it's not even contextualized anywhere in my being right. that I or we as a collective are superior to anyone else i'm just going yeah this is cool there's some cool things here yeah and i i could go to brazil and be like yeah brazil is awesome i love brazil it doesn't mean that i hate chile you know yeah. what i mean yeah i think it's just it's just part of the human psyche to compartmentalize things like that and, and yeah. create an us for that sense of i don't know egoic surety or security it's yeah a, it's a strange way that we we operate in that yeah it is it's weird there's a, there's that aggression built into it it's totally unnecessary I've been using infrared saunas for over two decades. They are awesome and something I would never want to live without. Infrared heat increases blood flow for faster recovery, better sleep, and a calmer central nervous system. In addition, it naturally releases a dose of happy chemicals in the brain, which leave you feeling super euphoric. But let's face it, saunas are very expensive, impossible to travel with, and can take up a lot of space in your house. So what I did to fix this was get a higher dose portable sauna blanket. It's got an amethyst layer to deepen the benefits of infrared, a tourmaline layer that generates negative ions, a charcoal layer to bind pollutants, and a clay layer which is balancing for the heat. And for those of you who want to experience the benefits of infrared without the sweat, they also have a really cool infrared PEMF mat that comes in two different sizes. I literally use the large higher dose mat every single morning and the small mat on my sofa here in the studio. It's right behind me. I just did some breath work before this recording. It was super toasty and awesome. It's incredibly relaxing and restorative. I love these mats. So whether you deal with chronic pain, work out frequently, or just need a moment to chillax, lying on their mats, even a couple minutes a day will help ease your mind and body from the inside out. To get your very own infrared sauna blanket or PEMF mat, go to higherdose.com today. And don't forget to use my exclusive promo code LUKE15 at checkout to save 15%. That's higherdose.com and the code is LUKE15. Dose as in D-O-S-E. There's a, there's a couple more things I wanted to touch on here. I think in it's kind of like, okay, so here we are, we are able to identify in your book and just kind of in this conversation that, ah, oh, man, we've made some, some missteps here along the way, but I also love my iPhone and my laptop and, you know, the ability to communicate with people across the world, live streaming here on Instagram. And I think this is where people bump up against it. It's like, well, what do we do? What aspects of kind of the natural human life way can we reintegrate so that we can be where we are on the planet doing what we're doing and not be so out of touch with our uh, our nature, you know, because it's not practical. This sounds like we're, you know, you, we're glorifying this hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Well, try going to live in the woods. The government will come get you and tell them you're on their land. Like, even if you really wanted to take it that far, you're 
you're prohibited because um, you've got a birth certificate, a social security number. You are a mini corporation owned by this giant corporation called the US, you know, in DC. And so it's like, even if you wanted to opt out of the system, you kind of can't. So what, well, I guess you can, if you really (laughs) know your, your law, you can find a way out, but still, where do you go then? Right. There's not like autonomous zones in nature where all the free humans that want to be hunter gatherers can go, et cetera. What are some ways that we can gain back some of what we've lost? You know, human connection, intimacy, our relationship with nature. What do you do to kind of reground yourself? Yeah, that, those are important questions. I, I think, you know, it's similar to, to what we were saying earlier about sex at dawn, right? I, I think the first step is to get an accurate assessment of what a meaningful life looks like. And I think a lot, the reason, the motivation for me to write books, and as you said, it's hard to write books, especially a book like Civilized to Death. That was really hard because it was a downer. you know it's a bummer like i'm writing a book about the biggest mistake any species has ever made which will probably lead to the destruction of us and most other living things other than that keith richards yeah like (laughs) just a little opt-ed no big deal exactly can't wait to get up and you know go write that tomorrow (laughs) um so it it was a slog and I, i tried to make it as as light and entertaining as possible but it's hard it's heavy i mean there's stuff in there about you know some of the most horrible things that that we've done as a species and um but what motivates me is that i think a lot of people are suffering unnecessarily a lot of people like with sex at dawn a lot of people are like there's something wrong with me why do i have these desires why do i have these thoughts what's wrong with me what's wrong with my wife what's wrong with my marriage what's wrong and uh, is the same motivation for civilized to death. I think a lot of people are looking at their lives and saying, I feel empty. I feel unhappy. I feel like time is slipping by and I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not learning anything. It's not getting better. I'm, I feel like I'm just getting old and there's nothing, there's no compensation. There's no wisdom. There's no excitement. There, there's no juice, you know? And what I wanted to, to show people is like, that's not your fault. That's not your fault. You're in a zoo. You are domesticated. You are being, you're enslaved in many ways. And there's no mystery to the fact that you're unhappy. <laughs> you're unhappy. You should be unhappy. <laughs> right. If you're happy, if you're the exception. Right. right. And what's that line? If, if, <laughs> if you're thriving in a sick society, you're sick. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I strongly believe that many aspects of American culture in particular are deeply pathological. And so if you're not suffering, if you're not feeling like this isn't right, um, well, good for you, I guess, I guess, but a lot of people are. And so those are the people I was writing for. Right. And so your question, how do we integrate these things? I think the first step is to recognize that, look, the, the reasons for your unhappiness have to do with misalignments. It's, it's like we could talk about it in physical terms, right? Like Mark Sisson and, and people in that world talk about the, the misalignment between our hunter-gatherer bodies and the kinds of food 
and activity levels and sleep levels and stress levels that the modern world is imposing on that body. And the body's not designed for that. The body's designed to move a lot, uh, but not run, walk, right? We're used to hunting and gathering, walking, stopping, moving, uh, the things that we like to do for leisure. I have a lot of friends who are hunting right now, right? Go on a picnic. That's essentially gathering. Take some food out and eat and let the kids run around and play, right, in nature. Um, these things resonate with us because of where we came from. So I think the first step is recognize where we came from, recognize what kind of animal we are, and then find ways to integrate these things. I think the most important thing is a sense of community. And, you know, there's research showing that if you feel that you're embedded in a community of people who love you, respect you, and care for you, people who have your back, which is a hunter-gatherer group, basically, the health benefits of that are equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, right? Not having that is like smoking a pack a day. Having that it's a wash. If you smoke a pack a day and you've got a great <laughs> crew, it's a wash, you know, statistically. I'm yeah. not encouraging people to smoke. Um, but it's a major effect uh, on health. Uh, walking. You don't need to go to the gym. You don't need a fucking treadmill. Do you know how treadmills were invite, invented as a torture device? I believe it. For prisoners in the 19th century, <laughs> I that was the that. invention. Wow. And now people have them in their office like, oh, I'm going to go torture myself and I'll feel better. No, you won't, man. Oh, You're not going to feel better. Uh, so stress levels, try to bring them down as low as you can. Pleasure up. There's nothing shameful about pleasure. That's why I lived in Spain 20 years. It was the first country I, I got to Spain. I was like, wow, these people, there's no shame around pleasure. They like, yeah, life is to be enjoyed. Fuck yeah, I get that, right? That's those are my peeps over there. Yeah, you know, hey, don't worry about work. Enjoy your lunch. You know, coffee to go. Why would you want? I remember I was sitting in a cafe one day, and a guy came in. And he was like, "Can I get that to go?" And I was like, mm, "I don't know. Do we have any paper cups around <laughs> here?" And finally, they gave it, and he left. And the uh, the guy who worked there was like, "Why would you want a coffee to go?" Like, just sit down and enjoy your coffee, you know? Like, why? It's just a philosophy of life. So I think the best way to integrate these things is to try to find your people. Find who do you love and how can you bring your life into enmeshment with them in a healthy way. So that could be physically. Like, you know, we've bought land in Colorado. In fact, we're here at this event with friends of ours who also bought some land there. We've got, I don't know, six or seven friends who've all bought land in this little town in the middle of nowhere. The land's super cheap. And uh, interestingly, there's no building code. So we can all just get together and build houses, build each other's house, like an old, you know, Amish barn raising. Um, And, you know, my buddy Oliver here, he's an auto mechanic and you know, I've got some book money I can throw in and, you know, help people and whatever. We each have our skills and our abilities and our resources. And together 
we take care of each other, right? I think so you can do that in a physical sense. It could just be buy a big old house with some friends and help each other. You know, your friends want to go on a vacation, take care of their kids because you know those kids and they trust you and they love you and they're, you don't need to hire a stranger for stuff like that, you know? I think this is a really important point and something that I, I think it's naturally emerging amongst I a certain so. sect of yeah. people. I mean, a lot yeah. of friends of mine in Texas are buying huge plots of land and everyone has kids and is married and family oriented and they're just kind of want to be left alone. And it sounds like a commune or a cult kind of thing, but the people that I know that are interested in doing that are actually very functional, emotionally healthy people. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. Some brilliant, creative, successful people that are like, eh, why go buy a house with a tract home with a bunch of people you're never going to talk to and you actually actively avoid them. Right. Instead of just going, Hey, here's, you know, 20 people that all Choose your neighbors. To, yeah. They kind why of not? see the world in a similar way and yeah. jive. And yeah. I love that idea. Of just yeah. Kind of- and, and you don't need, it doesn't need to be a commune, right? It doesn't need to be, Oh, we're all going to pool our money. And then you got to deal with all that bullshit. Everybody can have their own property, but we're just, we're doing this in an intentional way to take care of each other. You know, I always think of that uh, State Farm commercial, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's like, you know, can we just have a good neighbor? Can we go back to the good neighbor? You know? Totally. Uh, So, yeah, I think there are ways, you know, buy food from your local farmer, right? Get to know your local farmer. Get Buy your food there. Have a garden, you know, like have some chickens. I mean, there, there are lots of ways. And so often, as often happens, crisis creates opportunity, right? So young people now are the first generation of Americans who are looking at life and saying, I'm not going to have, it's not going to be better than my parents, right? I'm not going to have Especially the kids into crypto. They're like, I already make more than my parents. I'm 10, (laughs) you know. On on paper, (laughs) sell it and then get back to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, as far as, you know, getting a job at the, down at the factory and raising a family like people were doing in the fifties, you know, one income per household and you could pay a mortgage and send your kids to college. That's gone, you know? And so I think there are opportunities to uh, cut back on the material stuff because we can't afford it. But the benefit is you find you never really need it in the first place. What you really need is love and friends and pleasure and time. Um, I know we've been going for a while here and we could probably open up another two hour podcast on this, but I, I have to ask, how do you see uh, the intentional use of psychedelics fitting in this kind of new way forward for us? When we go back to many hunter gatherer people, they're using entheogens, right? In Africa and South America and uh, North America, different places, part of that communal uh, glue seemed to be around ceremony and oftentimes included, you know, the shaman, the medicine man or woman and going in oneself and getting a wider perspective on, on life and ourselves and the cosmos and God. And I, every time I journey during it and after, I think this is the way, like, this is what we need. And of course, you know, you get enthusiastic and then you come out of it and integrate and you're like, all right, I'm not going to go proselytize and maybe Mm. it's not for everyone, but I really feel that, and we're here at Meet Delic, that there are some master keys to the lock of our uh, displacement 
you know, that there, there is some way moving forward of, of cohesion between people who are awakening to their, their true selves and their connection to spirit. And I, I know that I've become a much better person and much more capable of intimacy and altruism and all the things that make you a fulfilled, good person for all intents and purposes from just being able to kind of um, discard the shackles that keep us stuck in the intellect and the ego and all these things that, that ultimately limit us. And it seems there are a lot of people waking up. I mean, I kind of love the trend of psychedelics. I'm sure we're going to be sloppy about it as it uh, comes Mm. to the forefront and becomes more accessible. It's, you know, it's a double-edged sword in some ways, but to me, this is kind of the great hope that Mm. people are going to become increasingly curious and legality around this stuff is going to loosen up and, it seems like this juggernaut of consciousness that might be the way forward. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, That's a hard one. You know, I went through that period when I was very young and, and my first few years using psychedelics feeling like, yeah, this is the way to solve the world's problems and everyone should, should try them. Um, but I came to a different kind of relationship with them over time. And this, this is something I'll be talking about tomorrow here at this event. Um, and I feel like what I'm afraid of is that the subversive potential of psychedelics will be drained away and they'll be corporatized and monetized and turned into just another fucking commodity. Mm. Um, And that's what we Americans do best, you know, cut down the forest and turn it into wood products, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And and I worry about that. Um, So I, I, you know, the jury's out. We'll see what happens. But I don't think that there's anything inherent in psychedelics that will make a bad person good. I think that they're very powerful in amplifying what's already there. Um, but I don't think Hitler would have you know, taking some <laughs> ayahuasca and said, my God, what have I done? Well, see, this is my fantasy of, of taking like 5-MeO-DMT smoke and just, you know, carpet bombing DC, sure. you know, and this utopia is right. going to emerge, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, I it's a gross exaggeration, too. but... Like LSD in the reservoir, totally, you know? Totally. Yeah. But you, you raise a good point, you know, because I have, I have known a few uh, facilitators and shaman, for example, that uh, upon first meeting them and in some cases even experiencing ceremony with them, I think, oh, they've got it. They get it. They're good. They're solid. And then later on, you know, seeing some pretty big holes in their character, kind of a lack of moral fortitude, I guess you yeah. could say, or integrity. And that's kind of brought me to understand, well, psychedelics aren't necessarily going to fundamentally change one's character if you don't already have some kind of blueprint or system or some laws or principles that you've developed into your um into your own integrity as a person right Right. so that you 
you kind of have a moral compass and you have solid values and however imperfectly you're following those and add some psychedelics to that and you get more of that, as you said, right? But it, it's not necessarily going to turn someone with a dark side or multiple personalities or God knows what else into an altruistic kind right. being. Especially without, as you said, ritual around it. You know, the, the societies you mentioned, the hunter-gatherer societies all over the world, in Africa and the Amazon and Mexico, that they have they do use these substances but with great respect with ritual with you know cleansing like you i'm sure you've experienced the the dietary restrictions for a while and and you know ways that are designed to bring a focus to your intention how what are you going to do what do you want to learn what i mean there's a lot around this the psychedelic is almost not even if you did all the ritual and didn't end up taking the drug, you'd probably still have an amazing experience, right? Just because you've taken this time and you've gone in the, like the, uh, the Zapotec in, in, in Mexico who trek to the desert where the peyote is and on the trek, the five or six nights, they all camp together. And while they're sitting around the fire, they take turns opening their hearts and saying what mistakes they've made in the last year what offenses they've committed against other people. And they ask for forgiveness. So by the time they get to the desert, their hearts are clean. They've, they've confessed, they've accepted, they've forgiven each other. That's a beautiful ritual, right? If you just did that, you don't even need the peyote, right? But that's built up over centuries around this experience. And I worry with us, the way we are in, in the Western world, it's like, you know, I met this dude, I was at a, a friend's birthday party in a Mexican restaurant in Santa Monica a few years ago. And I was sitting at the table next to this guy and my buddy's like, hey, you should talk to Chris. He knows about psychedelics. And I was like, oh, yeah, what's up? And he said, yeah, you know, um, since I got back from Afghanistan, I've been having a lot of PTSD. So I decided my girlfriend said I should take some ayahuasca. I was like, mm, Okay. How's, where are you going? What are you going to do? He's like, oh, tomorrow in, in Venice Beach. And they wanted me to stay for the weekend, but I only have one night because I got to go to Miami. I got some stuff going on down there. And, and the guy's got a, you know, a, a margarita in his hand and he's having a burrito or something. And he's going to go do ayahuasca the next day in Venice. I was like, and he's like, what, you, you think it's a bad idea? And I was like, well, it's not a magic pill, right? Like they're, there's a process around it. Like you don't drink alcohol or eat meat for a while. You prepare, you, you know, it's like, anyway, so that turns out it didn't go well. Uh, somebody freaked out in the session and called the cops and they raided it. And so everyone's tripping while the cops are, you Oh know, my yeah, God. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I worry about. It's not a magic pill. Oh my God. It's that gave me chills, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I was a teenager in, in my twenties, I used to go to a lot of dead shows, you know, and we'd take tons of acid here in Vegas, actually went to one. Um, it's funny enough. Las Vegas would be the last place I would ever recommend somebody do any psychedelics, but there were, I don't think, well, actually, no, once I did get bust, I did get busted by the cops. They threw us in the car. We're frying on acid at, at a dead show in uh, Orange County. I mean, if you're in that vulnerable state and shit goes wrong, 
it can go really wrong. I mean, luckily yeah. I live to tell the tale, but when you said that, I'm like, oh God, on ayahuasca, it's like, that yeah. is yeah. just absolutely horrific. So I, yeah. I like the point that you raise and, um, you know, I'm glad there are people like you. They're the voice <laughs> of reason, you know? <laughs> the grumpy old and I, man. And I think I am too. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, my wife uh, is a shaman and she's much more conservative even than I am and, you know, yeah. very infrequently um, journeys and it's not even how she really um, serves people. But uh, it is kind of, I think we have to have temperance between enthusiasm and seeing what's possible and the excitement of this awakening that um, is potentially there, but also be very mindful of, yeah. of tradition and set and setting and all those things. You kind of get sick of hearing people say, yeah, set and setting, yeah, I get it. But no, really, like for real set and setting yeah. and intention and the preparation and, and the aftercare. Yeah. Respect, yeah. yeah. So thank you for bringing that to the conversation. And most people that I've interviewed and we that we've touched on this stuff, I mean, I think all of them have had a reverence for these experiences in medicines because I mean, especially something like 5-MeO-DMT. I mean, you're rearranging your entire psyche in 10 minutes, potentially. That's how mm. it's been for me. And that's not something that I would just wander into willy-nilly and be like, oh, I heard it's fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, Things yeah. will never be the same in most cases after some of these deep experiences. Yeah. Hopefully for the better. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks what for having awesome, me on. I'm this so is... glad this finally, this finally happened. You know? Yeah. I prefer to do my interviews in person, you know, and so yeah. sometimes it's like, ah, oh, well, I got to wait till I'm going to be where they yeah. are. Yeah. I saw you on the bill here and I was like, yes, sweet. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you reached out. I, I'm the same. I, I just passed 500 episodes. I mentioned Incredible. earlier, uh, I've been doing it for nine years or something. And the first until COVID I did only in person. Yeah. Um, and that puts a cramp in it, but it's a much better conversation. I, think. I mean, it's, it's, I think produces a better end. I don't want to call it a product, but say end experience for the listener or viewer. Right. But for me, it's just way more fun. Right. Like if we were on a Plus Zoom. Plus you get to meet someone. That's the whole point yeah, of having totally, a podcast totally. for me is you get to meet people. And there's those subtle cues, nonverbal communication. There's nuances that are delayed by the internet connection. Yeah. And it's just kind of weird. So glad yeah. we got to do it. I yeah, do have one last too. question. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you might share with us? Oh, three teachers or teachings. Well, uh, Henry David Thoreau who wrote Walden famously and Civil Disobedience, less well-known, but equally important work. Uh, I read that a long time ago, probably 17, something like that. And that really struck me. There's a line in Walden where he says, uh, a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. Wow. Uh, I've never forgotten that. Wow. And over the years, decades that I traveled around the world with a backpack and now in a van, it's, I'm very conscious of the, the wealth to be found in minimal needs. That's been important. Um, my father it was a great teacher for me, both my parents really, um, in, in that they, they, you know, they were married. My dad died uh, three years ago. Uh, my mom's still around. She handles the merch for my podcast. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. She's at the end. There's a thing where I talk to her and she's like, well, we've got T-shirts and we've got stickers. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Funny, yeah. Um, but anyway, they they were married. They were monogamous. They were in love. It was They met in high school. It was like, you know, 50s, late 50s. 
Um, and they were totally unthreatened by me having a very different kind of life. You know, my dad had a job and he was successful and mortgages and all that suburban life, but they never felt that my divergence from their reality was in any way, uh, um, it, it gets back to what you were saying earlier. Like you can love chocolate and not hate vanilla. They, they always got that instinctively. And they're like, okay, you're a weirdo. You want to go, you know, hitchhike to Alaska with a backpack and work on a fishing boat. Well, good for you. Have fun. Be careful. But they never were like, you're wrong. You're wasting yeah. your education. You're you have get to be killed. like us to be right. Yeah. No, they always were like, it's your life. Do what you need to do. We, we got your back as much as we can. And we love you no matter what. And that was awesome. Um, so, yeah, I would say they were two very important teachers. And honestly, I mean, you know, I, I see psychedelics. We mentioned the Zapotec earlier. They refer to Paiote as El Maestro, the teacher. And I feel that psychedelics have been, for me, uh, a mentor in a way. Um, and I've learned a lot from access to them and uh, the states of consciousness that, that they helped me identify. So if that's possible, it's topical here at Meet Delic. I, I would agree 100%. 100%. Yeah. It's almost, I view the, the, the medicines as kind of, I've never looked at it like, oh, it's the teacher, but it's sort of, it's like they're, um, they offer a portal into the teaching, capital T, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like they're, they're an access point that, kind of lift the veil and, and give us access to right. a, a greater scope of wisdom and understanding. You know, they're kind of like a distraction almost like, Hey, look over there. They're just going, it's over there. It's over there, but give you the eyes to see. Right. There's yeah. I, a- I remember reading a, a line somewhere that a great teacher is not concerned with conveying information. They're concerned with creating a space in which learning is possible. Bingo. Beautiful. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, where can people find your books, websites, all that stuff? We'll put in the show notes. Uh, ThatChrisRyan.com. It's all there. Cool. Awesome, man. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks. Well, ladies and germs, that's another episode of the Life Stylist Podcast. I'd like to thank you from me, your host, Luke Story, on behalf of our guest, Chris Ryan. For those of you that would like to dig into the show notes, again, you can find them at lukestory.com slash chrisryan. That's all the links, all his books, even links to the complete written transcripts for this episode and, and every episode, actually, we've got transcripts for now. So for those of you that like to read and do a little detail work around these conversations, we've got you covered. On to next week's episode. It's number 395 with the incredible and brilliant Dr. Ellen Vora. That one's called The Age of Anxiety and the Many Paths to Peace. And man, I really enjoyed that conversation. It's about, I don't know, hour and 45 minutes long, and we went deep into the zone of all things anxiety, fear, and of course, the antidotes that work for both of them. So I'm really excited to bring you next week's episode. Let me give you a little tip here. If you subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app, you don't have to go refresh and check to see when I put a new one up. You know why? Because when you subscribe, it just automatically gets downloaded to your device. 
That's what I do with my favorite podcast. There's about 10 I listen to. And uh, I want to just know the day that they get published that it happened and I'm ready to listen to it. It's especially useful, by the way, if you like to avoid EMF like me, because the episode will be downloaded and you can put your phone in airplane mode while you listen to it. Just a little tip there. I don't know if you're aware, but I recently launched my own blue blocking eyewear line. It's called Gilded, G-I-L-D-E-D, Gilded. And you can find this incredible eyewear that protects your sleep and brain and nervous system and all the things at GildedByLukeStory.com. Exciting announcement uh, pertaining to Gilded. We now have prescription glasses, readers, as well as children's styles. So if you can talk your kid into wearing some blue blocking glasses after dark, you'd be doing them a huge favor. Again, you can find them at gildedbylukestory.com. All right, that's enough out of me. I'll see you next week with Dr. Ellen Vora. Mm-hmm.